0: Isn't it interesting that often when we speak about our spiritual lives, we end up talking about our feet. When we begin a new job, we talk about finding our feet in that new situation, or we turn up at a new church and we feel unsettled until we've found our feet. Remember, finding your feet doesn't mean discovering them at the end of your legs. Finding your feet means, I'm feeling steady now. I'm feeling comfortable now. We kick goals in life. Some of us do. We might describe a person as footloose and fancy free. Not always a good thing. Uh, We get a toe hold in a difficult situation. Often we speak about our feet to describe our emotional or our spiritual state. And we do the opposite, uh, especially in the, in the scriptures. We lose our footing, which might mean that you've skid on a banana skin, although I've never actually seen anyone skid on a banana skin. Like, it's only a thing that happens in cartoons, right? Or we slip on black ice. Well, In Psalm 121, the psalmist said boldly, Yahweh, my keeper, will not let my feet slip. They might have meant stumble on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, or they might have meant that in all their life, going out and coming in, the Lord will keep them steady. Our Father in heaven cares for us. He watches over us. He will not let your foot, your feet slip. Psalm 121 was designed to help us feel confident in the Lord, our keeper. But Psalm 73 is different. And if you look at the second verse, my version is the ESV, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Whereas Psalm 121 is designed to give us reassurance that God's got our back. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's our strong but tender Heavenly Father. Psalm 23, I oh, beg pardon, Psalm 73 is not just trying to reassure us, but challenge us to keep learning that God's got our back. Keep reminding us that God will guide even when we suffer. I heard in some of the small groups uh, after the last session, people saying, how can it be true that God will never let our feet slip? How can it be true that God's always God's? Don't Christians suffer? Of course Psalm 121 was designed to give us confidence which we need right Psalm 73 has a slightly different point not so much to comfort us perhaps a bit but to challenge us to keep focusing on God our guide and so it uses the language of feet in a different way. Well, the psalmist in Psalm 73 begins, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's what he's meant to say, right? God is good. So he says it, but then in the very next verse, but as for me, you know what? It wasn't quite so simple. I almost lost it. My feet almost slipped For in verse 3 he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why does he almost lose his footing? Because he fails to look to the Lord and looks around and sees how well people are doing who are not Christians. He names it that green-eyed monster, as Shakespeare describes it, envy. He wants what they have. It's eating him up. It's making him dissatisfied. He's grumbling. He's feeling empty, insecure. And when he looks around, verses 4 and 5, he sees that they're buff. I mean, that's my language. (laughs) They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And of course, in those days, fat bodies were the attractive ones because it meant you were wealthy and you could eat a lot. He looks at their bodies. They're fat and sleek. They're attractive. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 5. They look powerful. They look powerful. And we do it too, right? Let's face it. Let's be honest. When we see the red carpet special before uh, an award show on TV, we see the people have the looks and the bodies and the glamour, the spouse or the partner. And glossy magazines trade on this. The whole point of a glossy magazine in terms of its encouragement of sales, is to first of all make you feel insecure, because you see those people with those bodies and those attractive yachts or villas. Then you flip the page, and there's an article on how to deal with your insecurity, how to lose weight, right? They're very clever. Those magazines make you feel insecure and then give you the remedy so that you won't feel insecure anymore. We look at those pictures in those glossy magazines or on the red carpet, and then we look in the mirror, or we look at our bank balance, and we feel deflated. In our world, we're obsessed with pain-free lives. When you hear uh, health reports on the TV these days, we're always victims of cancer. It's made like cancer is this personal enemy and they're the victor and we're the victim. It's a crime to have cancer. So evil do we think of sickness in our world. Well, those folk in, in the psalm who have those sleek, fat bodies are described as having pride as their necklace Verse 6, violence covers them as a garment. They grow arrogant and misuse others. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're full of it. Literally. They're so full that you can barely see their eyes because their faces a fat and swallowing up what otherwise might be one of the sparkling features of their face. Verse eight, they scoff and speak with malice, they threaten oppression, their words are sharp. They make you know that you're not as good as they are. They're too superior to be hurt. And what's worse, they speak against God, verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. What an extraordinary picture. They speak against God and against God's creation. Therefore, verse 10, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. People love them for their arrogance, for their achievement. And those who are fat and sleek say in verse 11, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The rich get richer, in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in their riches. You can hear the psalmist's spirits drop. Why should the wicked prosper? That's not the way the world's meant to work. Surely, if I'm leading a godly life, God should be blessing me. And those who are leading an ungodly life, the Lord should not be blessing. Surely that's the way it should work, right? It's just not fair. The Psalmist is calling out. And no doubt in so many ways that I can't begin to describe You can think of occasions in your life when you've said privately perhaps or to the Lord, Lord, it's just not fair. Why me? Why us? We want the world to work with simple cause and effect. You do good, you get blessed. You do bad, you get punished. That's the way we kind of want to work. It did feel a bit like that in Psalm 121. But now we've got another side to the story that life might not always be as simple as that. Job's friends came to Job and gave him really bad advice because they thought the world should work with simple cause and effect. If Job suffered much, he was being punished much. And here's Job saying... I've done nothing that deserves this. And of course, we meet many people today who have such a simple worldview too. We've met uh, Israel Folau in the last few years, who spoke about bushfires and evil people getting their deserve. Or that God's punishing Australia, as some people have said, because We've permitted same-sex marriage. It's kind of like there's this easy cause and effect. And the book of Proverbs reminds us of those kind of interactions. There is pride, but no disgrace for them, uh, we read. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. uh, Proverbs 11, verse 2. Or Proverbs 11 verse 3, the integrity of the upright guards them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. There's a simpleness about it. But actually, it's not always true that we can rely on simple cause and effect. In Psalm 73, our psalm this morning, there's crookedness, but no destruction for them for the moment. We believe that God is powerful. We believe that God can work in the world, that God wants to use his power to care for me, to care for us. So what do we do then when we don't see God using his power to punish those who are wicked? It's easy to lose trust that God is powerful when we see evil prospering in the world when we find our own feet slipping. Well, there was a great earthquake in 1755 in Lisbon, in Portugal. Uh, The whole city was in church on the Saturday morning of November 1st, All Saints Day, a great uh, occasion for Roman Catholics. And at that moment, to that time, perhaps the most devastating earthquake in human history hit, and 100,000 people died, almost all of them in church. Those who weren't Christians, the great <coughs> philosophers, of the Enlightenment said, aha, I told you that God wasn't powerful. How foolish to believe he couldn't even protect his own who were in church on such an important day of the Christian calendar. Those who weren't Christians used that occasion to speak ill of the Lord. Christian faith was already being seen as empty, vain and powerless. And here was the proof the philosophers needed. It's a very powerful argument, isn't it? Where was God when he should have been using his power to protect his people? That is, if you have a really simple view of cause and effect. But what Christians have done over the centuries is think carefully about this and have argued that perhaps there are different kinds of causes. Primary cause or secondary cause, direct cause or indirect cause. So what Christians have done to explain how there can be a powerful God in a world where there's evil and suffering is to use some philosophical categories to help explain what they think is going on. And that's been a really useful strategy, and probably you do the same. You might be leading a godly life, I hope you are, by the way, and you face suffering, you'll try and explain how you believe God is still good and powerful despite those setbacks, those pains, those challenges. John Calvin, a great Christian leader in the period of the Reformation, uh, described God's work in the world like this. Just imagine there's a rotting corpse in the sun and it begins to stink. No surprise there. He argues, what caused the stench, the corpse or the sun? Very clever question. Well, kind of it was the corpse, because if you didn't have the corpse, there wouldn't be the stench. But it's kind of the sun, because if it was a cold day, there wouldn't have been the kind of right conditions for the corpse to smell. Calvin argued that the sun provides the condition, but the sun doesn't provide the smell. Quite cleverly with that little story, Calvin has explained there's a difference between primary and secondary causes. Or, for example, uh, you might be old school and actually use a pen to write a letter. When you write the letter with that pen, what's doing the writing? Is it the ink or is it the pen or is it your hand or is it your brain? There's different causes in the writing of the letter, right? In effect, the ink and the pen and the hand and the brain are all together causing the letter to be written. I think this is quite a useful category as we explain and defend why we believe in a powerful God, though there's evil in the world. But we get these tips from the scriptures as well this is this verse from genesis 50. joseph says to his brothers don't be afraid am i in the place of god you planned evil against me but god planned it for good to bring about the present result the survival of many people see what joseph is saying is you cause something evil brothers But God caused something as well. He caused good to come out of this. For Joseph helped protect the land of Egypt and his brothers in the famine. Or the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You caused his death you Romans, but God caused him to be both Lord and Christ, risen from the dead. It's so amazing that God has built a world that one effect can have two causes. Isn't that magnificent? God has made such a wondrous world that one effect can actually have one, two or more causes. That's the magnificence of the creation in which we live and work. The psalmist is introducing us to this reality that he is living as a believer and yet his life seems not to be prospering. What is going on, he's asking. He's really asking a question about how God uses his power. For our good or not? Well, the psalmist is feeling in the slough of despond. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. He feels like there's no point in living as a Christian. All in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. We don't do that in a post-COVID world. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will thus speak, I would have betrayed the generation of my children. he's finding himself all so conflicted. Verse 16. But when I thought about how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned, then I understood their end. He's about to give it up. He's about to say it's just too hard. He's tired. He's worn down. He's sick of fighting the good fight. What will it matter, he thinks, if I take a shortcut? What will it matter if I look at that website? What will it matter, really, if I allow myself some luxury at the end of a hard day of work? But then when he goes into the sanctuary of God, the very place where God promised to make himself available, the very place where God promised for his name to dwell, in that very place he, he confronts the law of God, he sees the mercy of God and all of a sudden, he has a breakthrough moment. You know those uh, heart moments? For me, there was a great moment when I, I was a, kind of in early high school, 13 or 14, and I got glasses. I hadn't realised my eyes weren't working out that they were trees in front of me. You put on the glasses, and all of a sudden you go, that's what a leaf looks like. I remember vividly driving home from the optometrists, looking out the car window, thinking, oh my word, and that's what it is to see clearly. I had the same kind of experience. It was a few years earlier when I first understood long division. Do, do we even do long division anymore? I have no idea whether I'd kids still learn this at school. And all of a sudden there's this kind of light in my head. I got it. When things seem foggy and then the haze lifts. That's what's happened to the psalmist in verse 17. He's been looking at this world. He's been looking at their lives. And now he realises that he actually has to read the novel from the last chapter backwards. They'd, uh, University of California recently did a survey as to how people enjoyed a book if they'd read the last chapter first. And this survey worked out the people who read the last chapter first actually enjoyed the book more. I know that we're always told, don't read the last chapter first, you know, keep yourself in suspense. But actually, emotionally, it helps to know how the book's going to end. And this psalmist discovered it long before the University of California. When he realized that he should think from the end of the world back, and he realized that their prosperity is temporary, all of a sudden, the anxiety fell away. The best way of understanding life is backwards. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. I thought I was the guy who was about to fall when I realise now is that they're actually already in the process of slipping. Verse 19, how they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They're nothing more than kind of a vision in the night. There's no substance to them. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He'd spent nine verses describing how fantastic their lives were. And now, like chaff being blown away in the wind, just three verses to describe their fate. They're easily accounted for in the end. As the Lord Jesus would say, they're on the wide path to destruction. He's recognised that concentrating on what seems to be God's unfairness is getting him nowhere. Yes, God's powerful. He needs to retrain his mind to work at where God is showing his power in the world. Look at verse 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have grasped my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You will receive me in glory. Grasp, guidance and glory. Where's God's power? Well, God's power is at that very place where the Lord has taken him by his hand. Where's God's power? Well, God's power is giving him counsel every day. God's power is going to bring him safely to glory. Rather than asking the question, why hasn't God's power cursed them? He's begun to say, perhaps I should retrain my thinking to see that God's power Is available in as far as God is caring for me, in as far as God is guiding me, in as far as God is giving me confidence that I will come safely to glory. It's not like the beautiful people have suddenly stopped being beautiful, it's not like the circumstances have changed, but He has a new attitude towards his circumstances. So he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice that? He has rediscovered God's power in his heart, holding him by his hand. He's not prosperous like them, but he's discovered something more precious. God is close. And in these last few verses of the psalm, We see that idea on a few occasions. Verse 23, I am continually with you. Or verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to anyone who's unfaithful. But for me, verse 28, it's good to be near God. If you look at verse 1, In the abstract, the psalmist says, truly God is good to Israel. He's meant to say that. But now, in the course of the psalm, he's learned something personal. For verse 28, it's good not just for God to be near Israel, it's good for God to be near me. He's learned how to buffer himself against the knocks that the world will bring. He's realized that though they are beautiful, for him... The Lord is close. Can you say that? It's good to be near God. It's good. It's good to be near God. In fact, when the Lisbon earthquake hit in 1755... The great revivalists of the church, people like John Wesley or George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, preached more and more how close God could be. It might not be philosophically satisfying, but it's personally satisfying. To lean into God and to own the fact that the world might go to heaven, or go to hell in a handbasket, but the Lord is close. <laughs> Listen to this verse from a Charles Wesley hymn. It's so striking in its imagery. By faith we find the place above, the rock that was rent in twain. Beneath the shade of dying love and in the cleft remain. Jesus, to thy wounds we flee, we sink into your side, assured that all who trust in thee shall evermore abide. Look at that way Charles Wesley is writing his hymn. He's describing himself crawling into the wounds on Jesus' side that the Romans put the spear into. It's a kind of obnoxious, it's a really awful image to crawl into Jesus' side. But Charles Wesley, through his hymn writing, is teaching us that that's what you do when you feel the world is out of control. You lean into the Lord Jesus. And his powerful protection. The psalmist. Hasn't had his circumstances changed. But he does have a new attitude. To the evil he confronts in the world. God is still powerful. It's not like God. Therefore is written off as being weak. He just recognises that. God's power won't always be expressed by removing the evil, but by helping us to deal with it. Friends, I want you to slow down to pray. For in a sense, what this psalm is calling us to is deliberate, slow reflection. It took the psalmist a while to process things, to think things through, to pray things through. But he finally reached a point of resolution. If you're facing suffering and asking the question, why isn't God's power clear? Slow down in your prayers and let yourself understand and own that God's power is available because he has bust through every barrier that stood opposed to our relationship with him so that we might know that he is close. Some things in life will be blurry. Just like your vision allows you to see more clearly straight ahead than peripherally on the side, So, the way God guides us through evil is that we keep clear before our eyes the Lord Jesus, even if lots of other things in our world are blurry and unclear. Why are feet so important in the Bible? Because they give my whole life direction. How do we set our direction? Well, we keep our eyes focused on Christ who is guiding us safely to glory. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything else he had just to buy it. So we pray, guide me. O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim in this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me in thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me now and evermore. Amen.